This is The Guardian. Today, the new Home Secretary is already stoking controversy. Just who is Suella Braverman? I'm not embarrassed to say that I love Britain. This is Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, the woman in charge of policing, national security and immigration. No Conservative is. You might not have heard her voice much yet because she's only been in the job for just over a month. It's not racist for anyone, ethnic minority or otherwise, to want to control our borders. But her rhetoric will seem familiar to anyone who's engaged with the debates over Brexit in the past six years. It's not bigoted to say that we have too many asylum seekers who are abusing the system. The type of anti-immigration language that at one time we would have heard from Nigel Farage and those further to the right has made its way into the mainstream. I would love to be having a, a front page of the Telegraph yeah. with a, fly, a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. By all accounts, Suella Braverman is an impressive person. She's highly educated, a lawyer and a former Attorney General. And her rise through the Conservative Party has been meteoric. Just seven years into her political career, she now holds one of the most influential jobs in the country. And there's no doubt she's good at making headlines. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, is considering upgrading cannabis from a Class B drug to a Class A drug. The UK Home Secretary, Braverman, said Indian migrants currently make up the largest number of visa overstayers in the United Kingdom. And she seems determined to make her mark. This just isn't just about policy or economics for me. It's intensely personal. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, she's pro-Brexit, anti-immigration and tough on crime. What will Suella Braverman actually achieve as Home Secretary? Peter Walker, you're a political correspondent for The Guardian and you've been following Suella Braverman's career from her first being elected as an MP to becoming Attorney General and now Home Secretary. Tell us about her background and how it might have influenced her politics. Well, I mean, I guess one of the most obvious things that would influence her politics is the fact that she comes from a quite Tory background. She was born in London in 1980. She's 42 now. And she was brought up in London, went initially to a state school and then went to a fee-paying school. But she says it was a relatively modest one. She had a scholarship for some of the fees. Her parents were both immigrants of Indian origin who came from Mauritius and Kenya. Her dad worked in various professions. He worked for a housing association for quite a while. Her mum was a nurse for 45 years, but her mum was also a Tory councillor in North London, in Brent, and actually stood for the Commons twice, both in unwinnable seats. So she very, very much picked up this Tory belief, both from the fact her mum was a Tory, but also from this idea of parents who both came to the UK without much and made something of themselves. As Braverman went on through her teens and into starting her career. In what ways did her background seem to have shaped 
what she did next. She was one of those classic people who become MPs who did very, very well at school. Her A-level results were incredibly good. Uh, she went to Cambridge to study law and then went on to study law in France and then worked in New York State as a lawyer too. People from that time say she worked very hard. She was clearly very, very bright. And she said in interviews too that she wanted to basically repay the efforts that her parents put in putting her through private school. This is this classic story of the second generation immigrant child, the one who's been brought up by parents who sacrificed everything to come to the UK, doing the best they can to make as much of themselves as they can. Why did she want to become an MP? She was interested in politics from quite an early age, not just because of her mum. She was heavily involved in the Cambridge University Conservative Association. And while she was working as a lawyer, as far as I understand it, she was basically looking round to get into politics as early as she could. So she got in in 2015, which is reasonably young. She would have been in her 30s at the time. So I think she was somebody who probably was obviously interested in law and had a career at the bar, which was always a possibility. But you get the sense that from the moment she was growing up, she'd seen her mum be a councillor and stand for parliament in kind of unwinnable seats. And I think it's like a lot of kids, you know, you see your parents kind of struggle and try and do something and say, well, you know, maybe there's a way that I can do it. So she became an MP finally in 2015. And then the next year, the UK held a referendum on whether to leave or stay in the EU. She said that this was her defining moment. Those hours between 1 and 4 a.m. on that momentous Friday morning, my whole world view changed. How did that referendum shape her views? She has always been seemingly on this strongly Brexit, slightly culture war, what you would say is the right wing of the Tory party. And what the Brexit referendum did for her, there's almost kind of two parts of it, one of which was it shook up the Conservative Party. It took this snow globe that lay dormant for decades and gave it a good shake. And a lot of the people who'd been the big beasts disappeared from view. And there was a new generation able to come in. But the other thing it did, which advantaged her hugely, was it basically tilted the Tory party to the right. Because people who were Brexiters, and in particularly those who were the hard Brexiters, who wanted a Brexit without any kind of single market or custom union membership, tended to be people who were anti-immigration on a large scale and took more right-wing views on that kind of thing. So this was a party being reshaped in real time towards the views which he'd held for quite some time. Did her holding those views help her then in terms of her career and moving up through the party? That very much seems to be the case. I mean, she was quite a new MP, but her first move up the ministerial ladder in the start of 2018 came when she was appointed as a third rank minister in the Department for Exiting the European Union. And she actually resigned about nine months later amongst the massive resignations over Theresa May's proposed Brexit deal. The Prime Minister is fighting to save her EU withdrawal deal and her job on a day of extraordinary drama at Westminster. So she both, I would imagine, got the job because May wanted to have suitably Brexit people um, trying to negotiate the Brexit deal. But she also kind of burnished her credentials on that side of the party by being strong enough in her views to quit. And that meant that she wasn't in another ministerial job for about 18 months. 
By that point, Boris Johnson had taken over. This was early 2020. And she was immediately catapulted to become the Attorney General, which is the senior law officer in the entire country. Geoffrey Cox was sacked as Attorney General, supplanted by Suella Braverman, who's made known her wish to rein back the power of courts to frustrate the government. It's a cabinet-level job. And for somebody to do that after only five years in the Commons and having only held a very, very junior ministerial rank before that is actually quite a leap. What was it about her then that was so compelling? to Boris Johnson that he hired her into that position. She's a very, very hardworking MP. She gets on with people well. A lot of people seem to like working with her. But in ideological terms, Johnson at that time, it was useful for him to surround himself with ministers who took a different view. And as Attorney General, some lawyers in legal trade took a slightly sniffy view and thought she was quite junior to be in the job. But in ideological terms, she took on what was a reasonably culture war approach to that job. It's very easy to say that the culture wars are a distraction. But make no mistake, the left are attacking our profound elemental values, wanting to replace them with the poison of identity politics. So she's quite against the European Convention on uh, Human Rights, even though there's obviously a limited amount you can do with that. She was quite happy to join in with the chorus of disapproval about lefty lawyers blocking government actions. So she became quite a useful front person for Johnson in this more right-leaning culture war end of things. And what do we know about her personal life? She's married to a man who works for the Mercedes Auto Company, and she's got two kids, two quite young kids. And what was notable about her personal life was that when she was uh, Attorney General last year, she became the first minister to basically take proper maternity leave, um, the the rules actually had to be changed a uh, little bit. So in the past, if you were a minister and you wanted to take time off, you know, for whatever reason, whether you'd had a child or something like that, then you had to basically resign from the post and then be appointed again. But they changed the rules. So Michael Ellis, who was the Solicitor General, the next rung down, basically took over the job for six months and then she came back into it. And looking back over how she did in that job, What's been the kind of consensus? The consensus was she wasn't enormously popular. Um, she did a couple of quite contentious things. Do you remember the court case um, of these protesters in Bristol who toppled the Edward Colston mm-hmm. uh, statue? And they were acquitted by a uh, court. And one thing that we know now is that Colston does not represent Bristol. <laughs> and she did something which, given her role, which is meant to be legally neutral, was seen as a bit dodgy. She asked whether it was possible to refer this to the Court of Appeal, which indicated she thought that the jury's verdict wasn't the right one, which is quite a contentious thing for the Attorney General to do. And she got quite a lot of criticism over that. And she also basically pushed the boundaries of that job as much as she did shortly before she left it. She sent schools this quite strongly worded letter setting out what she saw as their legal responsibilities over trans rights and basically saying, you know, they didn't have to include pupils who identified as transgender as much as some schools did. Uh, She's taken a harder line on pupils with gender dysphoria, saying that schools have a legal right to treat transgender pupils as the gender assigned to them at birth. And she criticised schools for their unquestioning approach. It was seen as quite a kind of intrusive and partisan thing to do. Yeah, she's outspoken. I know that she also defended Dominic Cummings for his infamous trip uh, to Barnard Castle. She said that protecting one's family is what any good parent does. 
which, you know, wasn't a good look. To suggest that that was somehow a legal opinion is simply absurd. Uh, she should know that I have no role whatsoever to play in the day-to-day decisions of individual cases. Then this year, after Boris Johnson was pushed out as leader of the party, she was one of 11 people who put themselves forward to be the next prime minister. A number of your colleagues have actually said that they wondered whether you, as and when the time comes for a leadership election, might think about standing. I'll be straight with you, Robert. Yes, I will. If there is a leadership contest, I will put my name into the ring. What was her pitch? Uh, I love this country. She was actually the very, very first person to do it. I mean, there's two ways to look at her pitch. Her public pitch uh, to the party was as a kind of small state reformer, as a kind of Liz Truss plus with added kind of culture war things. I don't think she would have realistically thought she had much chance of winning. She even struggled to get through the first round of MPs voting and she got eliminated in the second round. The numbers are as follows. Badenoch, 49. Braverman, 27. Mordant, 83. Sunak, 101. Truss, 64. Tugendat, 32. Therefore, under the rules, Suella Braverman is eliminated from the uh, contest and the others are able to go forward uh, to a further ballot on Monday. Thank you. But that got her out there, it got her able to make speeches and got her in a position to get a decent job, which obviously she did. So do you think that was her motivation in going for it? She didn't really realistically think she could get the top job, but she was hoping to get a cabinet role. I think there's two things, one of which is to, yes, put yourself in a public eye and potentially get a cabinet role, but it's also to lay down a marker for the future. She's relatively young. Um, She's only been in the Commons for seven years. So there's a lot of people who were amongst the younger generation who were thinking, I might not get it. It looks like it's going to be a kind of Rishi Sunak, Penny Morden, Liz Truss three-way race. But even when things go wrong, it looks like they might be going wrong quicker than anyone thought. Then you want to be in the minds of MPs when the race starts again once more. Who do you think she appeals to within the Tory party? So she was appealing to MPs who basically want to shrink the state, who want lower taxes, but also want to push against the kind of ideologies of woke and things like that. So she had a two-in-one package. As soon as she was knocked out of the race, she gave her backing to Liz Truss. Why do you think Liz Truss has hired her as Home Secretary? Is it just because of that sense of loyalty? I think it's partly the loyalty. I think it's quite useful for Truss to have someone who's very, very anti-immigration, very, very pro-Brexit and quite culture warish in this job because, um, in, in, in part because I think Truss genuinely wants a very, very robust approach to issues like immigration and particularly the asylum seekers and others who are making illicit crossings in small boats across the channel. So you want someone who's going to push that as hard as you can, but you also, in a kind of slightly cynical political sense, want someone who's a human shield. And basically, Braverman is about as robust on this as you can possibly get. This is one of the most important roles in the government, isn't it? What will her main responsibilities be? Home Secretary is an incredibly broad and complicated job. It's got asylum, immigration, police, security, everything connected to that kind of area. And it's one of the jobs where, you know, as a minister, you're most likely to be called out of bed in the middle of the night. So, Peter, since becoming Home Secretary just over a month ago, 
Braverman has been really skillful at getting headlines. Take us through some of the attention-grabbing things that she said. <laughs> There's been quite a lot. I mean, in part, this is a reflection of the fact that Braverman is in a job that really chimes with what she really, really believes and wants, you know, things to change in a certain way. In part, it's also a reflection of how incredibly quickly discipline in the trust cabinet has broken down. At the Conservative conference, she said she wants to get net migration down to the tens of thousands of people every year from the hundreds of thousands. She wants the Rwanda deportation scheme to speed up as much as she can. She said it would be, quote, her dream to start seeing asylum seekers and others being flown there by Christmas. And then two other quick things. She's basically wrote to every police force in England and Wales saying they should spend less time on, quote, symbolic gestures, by which I think she meant, you know, dancing at pride festivals and taking a knee and things like that, and more time on police and crime, which indicates, you know, the two competed with each other, which I don't think police forces think they did. And in quite a striking intervention just in recent days, she's indicated that she wants cannabis upgraded from its current status to be a class A drug, which would basically mean if you were convicted of dealing in cannabis, you could potentially be sentenced to life in prison. Why is she doing that? What's she playing at? I don't think she's necessarily playing at anything. I think she genuinely believes this. She's your classic law and order Home Secretary who believes in this almost 1950s approach to it. But it's also mixed in with this peculiar modern conservative mix of quite hard right culture war stuff. It's quite easy to almost not notice how far in the Conservative Party's things have shifted to the right because it's been gradual. It's been the kind of boiled frog thing. But the idea of asylum seekers being deported to an African country, not just sent there to have their claims processed, but sent there on a permanent basis, that's the kind of policy which certainly 10 or 15 years ago, only essentially far-right parties would have said. Mm. And there's been this gradual shift towards it, such that a mainstream right-wing party is now advocating this. And she's one of the most eager and vocal proponents of this move to the right on such issues. Her predecessor was Priti Patel, who was seen as being on the right of the party. In what ways is Braverman likely to be continuing her legacy and in what ways will she diverge from it? Talking to her during the campaign trail, she had some quite interesting thoughts. I was quite struck by the first speech that she gave when she was standing for leader, which was this kind of quite chaotic, mass event with other leadership campaigners which was this incredibly sweaty basement in the Churchill War Room um, in the centre of uh, London. It was so sweaty that at least two people passed out just from the sheer kind of heat and lack of air. But her speech to the Tory faithful there, she basically said, we need a small state. But she was saying, you know, I accept there's challenges to it. It's not easy. We've got a population which is ageing who need like healthcare and social care. This is something that's going to take kind of decades. So I think she's got a kind of chance to in the coming weeks and months to step back a bit from just flying these right-wing kites to the Sun and other papers and try and set out, potentially for a future leadership bid, what her brand of small-state conservatism is. From an ambition point of view, she very, very much wants to put herself at the vanguard of all of this because it is possible that if the next Conservative leader is picked by the members in the way the Liz Truss was, that might be what they want. What do you think is the most pressing issue that she's got to deal with now? I guess it depends which way you look. From a kind of media politics point of view, I think the channel small boats is the big thing. 
And this is a really, really difficult one because it's an area where successive Conservative Prime Ministers and Ministers have promised action, but it's also one where it's almost impossible to do anything about it. She's proposed the idea of ruling that any migrant who arrives in this fashion would not be able to claim for asylum at all. But again, this would be politically very, very difficult. Some lawyers believe that would breach international conventions the UK remains signed up to. But also a lot of these people who are coming to the UK are from incredibly desperate situations. You have people who would come from Afghanistan who potentially might have been even working for the British before the British left. And the optics of then being then told, I'm afraid you can't stay here, you have to go somewhere else, would be very, very bad. Immigration is also key, but it's this battle over what happens in immigration in economic growth terms. Because there is this move within the cabinet to potentially try and help some industries by letting more short-term workers in, um, whether it's farm workers or you know people with health or you know various other uh, industries where people can come in on six-month or one-year or two-year visas. And it's you know, an undeniable fact that if you want rapid economic growth and getting more workers in, it's a way to do it. And so far, Braverman has been very, very resistant to this. She's seen as a block to this. And this is shaping up to be quite a kind of key battle between the economic liberals and the kind of culture war right-wing liberals within the party. It's going to be quite interesting. And if Braverman, you know, holds firm and keeps immigration very, very low, that might endear her to the uh, Tory members, but it also might keep growth low and make it even more likely that the government gets, you know, booted out of uh, office. That's really interesting. How do you think things are going to shake out then between her and Truss? You know, I, I was quite interested to see in Truss's speech at the Conservative Party conference, she did a special shout out to Braverman in the crowd because of the Rwanda policy. But that's not something that she personally seems to have espoused before now. How aligned are their views on immigration? Truss is definitely on the right of the party. She's not a natural culture warrior during the endless uh, hustings events that took place around the country during the leadership contest. There's always this kind of two-minute section of Truss's speech where she'd vaguely mention trans rights and, you know, woke cultures and stuff like that, just as a kind of sop to the members. Um, it never seemed to be, it was the most natural part of the speech. And I think the only answer really is that no one actually knows where we are because not least Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, her chancellor, are still trying to work out what their economic growth plan is. And in the next few weeks, they've promised to go public with all these kind of reforms to the economy, separate tax cuts, which they hope will speed things up. And I think they genuinely don't know yet whether immigration will form part of it. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a certain amount of small-scale temporary immigration in specific sectors. Mm. And my guess would be that Braverman could probably live with that. Is she absolutely anti-immigration or does she support immigration of so-called skilled workers? Well, she does in a sense that the Conservative policy has always been this, quote, kind of best and brightest so, you know, you want people who are coming to high school work, but she's more anti-immigration in general than most people. Um, she's even talked up against the idea of a lot of students coming in on student visas, which again is kind of quite anti-growth, given that the UK university sector is a massive driver of growth in lots of areas. And so controversial because 
international students are absolutely essential to keeping a lot of universities going at the moment. Well, they are because the amount of fees they pay is like a huge amount. She's expressed worry about some students, particularly Indian students, overstaying their visas and bringing family members with them. But basically the only family members you can bring with you are incredibly close ones, whether a spouse or kids. So it's not seen as a massive thing. But if she is serious about this tens of thousands um, net migration pledge per, per year, and if she is serious, she's probably the first conservative politician to actually mean it, then you would have to look at all that stuff. But that would cause a big fuss. Braverman's also been asked in interviews how she, as the child of people who emigrated to the UK, could hold such limited views on who should be allowed into the country. How has she responded to those questions? I mean, her response has been the same as quite a few other second generation immigrant children of immigrant parents who've risen to high roles in, in the modern Tory party. She argues that her parents arrived by a legal route and she's got nothing against immigration per se. She just thinks, which is a very kind of Brexit theme, that the UK should be able to control it and that she doesn't believe that people who are, for example, crossing the channel in small boats, she argues that they're jumping the queue. I mean, someone who's an uh, immigration advocate would say that the actual queue in the sense of safe and legal routes for migrants from these sorts of countries to get to the UK almost don't exist these days. So that's the only way to get in. But her argument is that if you're going to do it, you should do it basically by the rules. It's very useful, isn't it, for the Conservative Party to have somebody on the front bench pushing through these very exclusionary policies who is herself the child of immigrants. What's their game there? I don't think there's a game here. I just think it's the fact you have, by chance, a quite high proportion of senior MPs and ministers from minority ethnic backgrounds, some of whom, like Braverman, hold these views. It's interesting in the effect it has in the party. I was talking to a Conservative MP who is themselves from a minority ethnic background, and they were saying that their view of it is it's, to an extent, emboldened Conservative members who this person was saying, well, you know, if they see a kind of crusty old white man who looks like he's from uh, UKIP talking about curbing immigration and kind of cultural stuff, then they don't necessarily think they want to follow suit. But if they see someone like Priti Patel or Swella Braverman or anyone like that espousing these culture wars, then it almost gives them the green light to do it. So if you're a culture warrior in the Conservative Party, it does make it slightly easier to argue these kind of things. Coming up, will Braverman actually be able to push her policies through? Peter, we've talked about how skillful Suella Braverman has been at grabbing onto so-called culture war topics and at getting herself in the news by advocating for exclusionary policies. But I want to understand what the likelihood is of any of those policies becoming reality. I mean, let's look at the most attention-grabbing one, the idea of deporting people who are seeking asylum to Rwanda. Where has that got to? Well, 
at the moment, it's got to the place which, if you were a bit of a sceptic, uh, you might think Boris Johnson and Priti Patel always thought it would and didn't mind, which is the fact it's a stated policy, but due to all sorts of factors, not least the involvement of the courts. No one has actually been sent there yet. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has said the government remains committed to sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, despite the grounding yesterday of what was to be the first deportation flight. Ms Patel said she was disappointed and surprised by a ruling from the European Court of Human Rights, which halted the takeoff. Officials are said to be already planning the next flight out. Because it is, in many ways, a policy which is fraught with difficulties, both moral and also legal, because you're sending people who've come often from the most conflict-strewn countries in the world, and to send them on a, what is meant to be a permanent basis to an African country with which they have absolutely no connection does strike many people as being quite odd. In terms of having this absolute bar on people who've crossed the channel in a small boat from claiming asylum in the UK... That would seemingly be quite difficult because it would, so some lawyers believe, go against various international conventions the UK is signed up to. So a lot of it is about the optics, about doing something which, you know, shows that you're tough. So, again, that's why the Home Secretary's job is an incredibly difficult one, because you're under enormous political pressure to, quote, do something about a problem which has got all sorts of international and multi-generational factors to it, which... You can't, as a single politician, just basically fix neighbouring countries. And what other difficulties could you foresee for her? I mean, she's clearly very well educated, but fairly inexperienced as an MP. What are the kind of pitfalls she should be looking out for? Braverman is, as you say, extremely bright. As a politician, she's untested, you know, relatively speaking. And she can mess up a little bit. Uh, she can go kind of slightly off-piste in her cultural war stuff. I remember in 2019, I was at a speech that she gave. She was a backbench MP at the time. This was between her being a junior Brexit minister and then joining the cabinet. She gave a speech to the Bruges Group, who's this kind of ultra brexit conservative organisation. And it was mainly about Brexit, but she drifted in her speech onto cultural issues and accused, I think it was Labour, of being in favour of cultural Marxism, and cultural Marxism is a slightly kind of niche conspiracy theory that's got quite anti-Semitic overtones to it. And her using it saw her criticised by the Board of Deputies of British Jews and various other people. And it was seen as a bit of a kind of mishap. So she can sometimes be so enthusiastic for cultural things, she pushes things too far. And how much could she actually achieve in her term in office? <laughs> I mean, there's so many... Um, unknown factors here, not least how long the trust administration is going to last and how much power it will eventually have. I think she's going to have to look for relatively small gains. She's got at most two and a half years in the post before there's a general election. She could make some progress on limiting immigration. She might potentially see some asylum seekers sent to Rwanda. I think the main metric by which she's going to be judged is how much she can potentially push herself as a viable candidate should Liz Truss fall or when that happens, or if the Conservatives are plunged into opposition in 2024 or 25, and there's a kind of bloodletting fight for the soul of the party, if she can take over from that. So it, it depends how it's going to be judged, but it's fair to say that on all these points, she's got a quite a tricky battle coming. 
Peter, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Peter Walker. You can keep up to date with his reporting at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams and sound designed by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Hummer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.